My goal this week um, is not necessarily to go through this passage again per se. I'm not really looking to do redo some of what Nikolai's done the past couple weeks. Go watch those sermons. My goal tonight is really to go through this passage <clears throat> and to provoke us a little bit. I don't know about you guys, but as I've been studying and spending time in this book and listening to Nikolai the past couple weeks, I have felt provoked. I have felt challenged in my faith. I hope you have also. And honestly, how could a passage more timely line up with world events as that passage last week? So when we are looking at Daniel, um, I think it's, we often, we often put him on a, a pedestal. We do this with any of these characters through the Old Testament that we look at. We put them on a pedestal and we elevate them and we think of them as some like high and, and uh, special person. Great and powerful, this mysterious prophet of sorts. Some of that's understandable. I mean, some of the things that we read about in Daniel, if you've read ahead, is anybody else reading along? Yeah? Read ahead a little bit through Daniel? Some of that, I mean, some of the stuff that happens in this book is incredible. But as we are studying this passage, <clears throat> and we're studying this book, our goal is really in what we've titled this series is how to be being faithful in exile. So as we're looking through this book, we're looking for ways that we can learn from the ways Daniel and his friends lived as faithful uh, remnant, a faithful minority, a creative minority in the context of Babylonian exile. I think the goal, and my goal tonight, is to sort of extrapolate some of what we see in chapter 2 and to bring it into here and now. What does this look like for us? We're not being necessarily chased down by the king to kill all the wise men. We're not in that category. But I think there is a lesson for us as we pull this out into today. What we're exploring is what it looks like to be a faithful presence. What does it look like to be a faithful remnant, a creative minority in a culture that is in opposition to your discipleship? In a culture that is actively working against you being formed into the image of Jesus, how do we live faithfully? And that's, I think, what we learn and glean from this story. Our goal is not just to know these stories better. We're not here just to, to understand and know the history of the exile. While that's important and it's valuable, and you can, there's lots of commentaries that focus specifically on that stuff, good stuff to read. Our goal is to look at why is this book in our Bible? How has this shaped the faith community, the Christian community, and disciples of Jesus throughout history, and how is it continuing to shape and to mold how we live today? We're asking the question, in the midst of options, in the midst of competing worldviews, 
How do we be a community of disciples practicing the way of Jesus? How do we be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did in the midst of options? We believe that we are to be fully involved in the life of the city and culture, and yet distinct and different from it at the same time. We are to live as aliens and strangers, as 2 Peter says. So what we see in Daniel 2, I think, is a great example of this. Tonight, I, wanna, I just want to highlight a few ways that have stood out to me as key markers of what we see in this passage. First off, the first marker that we see is faith and confidence that Daniel had. And actually, we'll have to go backwards from what we read tonight just a little bit, starting in verse 8. I've got a lot of scripture tonight. You guys have your Bibles? <laughs> okay. We're going to look at a big, couple big chunks of scripture. So if you have your Bibles, that might be helpful. Daniel chapter 2, I'm going to jump back to verse 8. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. So context here, what's happening. The wise men, the, mag the magicians, the enchanters, <clears throat> they've been summoned to interpret the king's dream. None of that's abnormal. Nikolai covered this last couple weeks. What's abnormal is the king doesn't tell them the dream. He says, you have to tell me my dream and then interpret it. They say, that's not possible. There's no one that can do that. So the king says, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. Verse 9, if you do, if you do not make the dream known to me, there is but what, one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretations. He is going to put to death all the wise men, the magicians, the enchanters. He's going to kill them all if they can't interpret. can't tell him first the dream, then interpret it. It's pretty intense. They say to him, I'm jumping down a little bit, kind of second part of verse 10. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. No one can do that. No one can tell you what you dreamed in your dream last night. Unless you're like sleep talking or something. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked for such a thing. Verse 11, the thing the king, the king has asked is difficult. No one can show the king except for the gods or those whose dwelling is not in flesh. Okay, <laughs> but the king stays firm. He's going to kill all of them. Daniel and his friends, we, who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they're in that camp. They are set to be put to death if they can't tell the king his dream. 
Let's jump down to verse 16. And let's do 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is this decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made known the matter to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. And then the verse that we read tonight, Daniel then went and found his friends. When Daniel finds out that the king is going to destroy all of the wise men, the magicians, the enchanters, what does he do? He first puts his own neck on the line and seeks an audience with the king. He does this without even having the dream or the interpretation. He doesn't even have what he promises the king. And he goes and requests an audience and says, I'll do it. I'll, I'll tell you your dream and I'll interpret it for you. He doesn't even have the interpretation. This, as I was thinking about this, it reminds me of a story from the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 14. You might know the story. We'll, we'll look at it in some detail here. 1 Samuel 14 is a story about Jonathan and his armor bearer. And they are at war. That's 2 Samuel. They're at war. It's a bit of a stalemate, a bit of a standstill. And rather than read all of this, I'm just going to set the stage and we'll read a couple of verses here. They're, they're at a standstill in this battle. The Philistines are on one side of this, this valley. Israel is on the other side. And nobody's crossing over. Nobody's fighting. Nobody's going over. It's just stagnant, not moving. Jonathan, son of Saul, gets this crazy idea. You guys know the story? Jonathan decides that they will go over to the other side. And who knows? This, let's read this. 1 Samuel chapter 14, starting in verse 1. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carries his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Jump down to verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish, and behold, I am with you heart and soul. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Jonathan says, who knows? It might be that God does something. Maybe not. But it might be. And so I'm willing to take a risk and go over there 
and see what God does. And his armor bearer who's with him says, do all that is in your heart. I'm with you. Let's do it together. Story goes on. Like, it's so good. Let's just, we'll read it. Verse 8. Then Jonathan said, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say to us, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hands and this shall be the sign given to us. That's not great like military strategy, right? Like, let's show ourselves, make ourselves known, and see what they say. And if they say, come on up, we'll know the Lord's given to them, given them to us. That's not the greatest military strategy. So they both showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. Right. That's, that was their plan. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet. Okay. It's also not necessarily the best military strategy. And his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike with jo which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 25 men. And it goes on. It's an amazing story. The, the Bible's full of these incredible stories. The point I wanted to make here, tying back to Daniel, is that there is a step of courage and confidence in the Lord where you put your neck out a little bit. Daniel took the initiative first in confidence in who Yahweh was and his faithfulness to his people that he said, yeah, I'll do it. He didn't have the interpretation. Jonathan says, who knows? God may, God may do something. God may give him into our hands. Daniel and Jonathan both had such confidence in God that they took a massive personal risk. They literally put their lives on the line for a possibility that God would show up. I love that. It might be. He didn't even have confidence in the way he said it. Or he had confidence, but not. <laughs> it's still a possibility. For nothing can hinder the Lord. Nothing can hinder the Lord. What would it look like, what would happen if that sort of confidence and boldness overtook us as a church? What would that look like if all over Sonoma County, a people living with alternative allegiances, a people living driven and compelled by an alternative narrative that the scripture is what guides them? What if we said our God is able, his hand is not too short to save, he can do it. Why not? Let's take a risk. What if our community began to take radical risks like this? To step out in faith 
and to believe that God would act. Think about the next chapter that we're going to look at next week. For those of you who've read ahead, kudos. Daniel 3, we know, we know Daniel 3. It's one of those felt board stories, VeggieTales stories, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <clears throat> this is where they end up in that fiery furnace. Spoiler alert. Uh, start Daniel 3.16. Let's read this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What confidence. What trust and loyalty to King this Yahweh. We will not serve your gods. He is able to do something miraculous, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow. That's what this looks like for us. That's what it looks like as an alternative community, as a creative minority, a faithful exile. Who knows? God might show up. This also reminds me of Acts 4. Again, like I said, there's, there's some long passages here, so bear with me. Yeah, I just want to read this too. We'll read. Is that okay if we just read some large chunks of scripture? I got the mic, so we're going to read some large chunks of scripture. Acts 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening. But many of those who have heard the word believed. And the number of men who came, uh, the number of men came to about 5,000. The next day their rulers and their elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. they all gathering. And when they set them in the midst, they inquired them, by what power, by what name did you do this? Context I should have given. What had just happened is this blind beggar had just been healed, and is creating an uproar in the city. So they're asking, by what power did you just do this? How did this happen? Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to the crippled man, by what means this has been, by what means this man has been healed? 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man standing before you is well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven which is given among men by which you must be saved. Verse 13, and this is key here. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. There's nothing they could say. I'm going to jump down to verse 18 for the sake of time. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in, your, in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot, cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For they all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I'm just going to keep reading this. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them, whom through the mouth of our father David, your servant, the Holy Spirit, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? Is that familiar? Read that last week. The kings of the earth set themselves up, set, set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. And this is it right here, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and then grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Isn't that amazing? I'm provoked by this. As I think through this story in Daniel, I think through this 
narrative in Acts. I'm provoked by this. I'm challenged and, and convicted by this. Are we so caught up with our comforts and our conveniences that we don't even see the opportunity in front of us? We believe that God wants to do something in our city, that he wants to do something in this county. We believe that God is after the hearts and the affections of your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, of the mom that you meet in the park, the barista at the cafe you, you go to, the, the clerk at Oliver's. We believe that God wants to do something in their lives. God is after their hearts, and he has anointed and chosen you as a vessel and a tool in his hand to do that. The point of this gathering, the point of, of us as, as pastors and elders is to equip you for the work of ministry. We're not here to fill your head with just good stories and make you more knowledgeable, make you feel comfortable and good with Bible trivia. Those are all fun things, but that's not what we're here for. We're here to be challenged and equipped and commissioned sent out to go and do things that bring the good news to bear with your friends and family and coworkers and neighbors. Let's jump back to Daniel real quick. I'm only in my second thing here. Second thing I wanted to highlight, the first was confidence and faith. Second thing is community. We see this in all of these narratives that I just read. With Jonathan, he has his armor bearer. With Daniel, what does he first do? He, he first goes, verse 17, Daniel went to the house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. What does Peter <clears throat> do in that Acts narrative that we just read? The first thing he does is he goes and he tells the believers. Verse 23 in Acts 4, when, he, when they were released, they went to their friends. You could easily pass this over, but this is important. The way of Jesus is always done in community. It is always done with people. We need each other, and you were never supposed to do this on your own. There's no lone ranger here. They go to their friends and they invite them in. When you step out in faith, when you're, when you're challenged or faced with an impossible situation, when something comes up in your life, don't carry that alone. You're not supposed to. Go to your friends. Have a community around you that you can bring this to, that you can open up. Some of the hope even is that prayer time is that you begin, you begin to share things that are going on in your life and we begin to find ways to pray for each other. That should be a normal part of your rhythms, normal part of your week. When something is confronted you that you take it to prayer and you take it to community. 
So he went to his friends, and what did they do? Did they give him, like, ten suggestions on how to win favor with the king? Did they hand him a book? Did they, like, dude, that sucks. (laughs) Did they give him good advice? Did they recommend a good counselor for him to go talk to? Calm down there, buddy. Did they give him supplements and say, hey, this will help you sleep? Those are all things we might do. No, what they did, none of those things are wrong, by the way. I'm not not saying any of those things are wrong. But what they did, and I think what we need to be better at, careful to do, is they go to prayer. Their immediate response is prayer. This is the third thing I wanted to highlight in this passage. The friends are called to pray. Way too often, we see prayer as a last resort. We wouldn't ever say that, of course. We're not going to, we wouldn't say that. But in reality, we do all the advice stuff and all the like other suggestions and self-help tips and practical ways to make things better. We do all that before we go to prayer. We're quick to give good advice, full of good advice. We're quick to try to fix a problem or even just listen. But do we realize the power that we hold in prayer? Do we realize the power that we have when we bring things before the God of all creation? We have access to the very throne room of God to boldly petition him. James says, we have not because we ask not. There is tremendous power in prayer. And yet, somehow, we, we just kind of forget about it sometimes. Just being honest. We have a God who is eager and willing to act on behalf of his children praying. He's looking for opportunities to act when his children ask. And yet we forget or we think of it as a secondary or tertiary thing. What if dreaming, our knee-jerk reaction, the initial response when somebody brings a crisis to you, when somebody shares a need, What if our initial response was, can I pray for you? And not just one of the like, try like, hey, I'll pray for you, pat answers, and you forget about it 30 minutes later, but like literally stop right there and pray for them. What if? What would that do to our community if that was this whole room, if everybody here, that was our normal response? We see this in both Daniel and in our passage we read in Acts. In the passage in Acts, this is, I mean, it's one of my favorite passages here, that verse 29 and on. Look on their threats. They just got their lives threatened. 
And they say, God, acknowledge their threats. We, we get it. That's serious. They're threatening to kill us. But give us boldness to do it more. <laughs> that thing that they're threatening us about, give us boldness so we can keep doing more of it. Stretch out your hand to heal. And what's amazing is that God shows up. That passage in Acts, the room is shaken and they begin to speak with boldness, it says. Fresh, increased boldness. God answers their prayer. They said, take note of their threats, give us boldness. What does God do? He shows his power, he shakes the room, and he gives them boldness. That's my fourth point here, is look for God to respond. We look at, in Daniel, God shows up. God gives Daniel the dream. He does what all the wise men of the most powerful nation on earth, what all the enchanters and the magicians said it was impossible, God shows up and does it. And that's the Old Testament. That's pre-Jesus. You and I have the second person, if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is your Lord, you have the second person of the Trinity dwelling within you. The Holy Spirit has taken up residency in you. We often look at these stories in the Bible and we assume that there are special and unique people that God dealt specially with. And sometimes that's true. My challenge for us tonight, though, is how much more than Daniel we have the Spirit of God living in us. That's what I was provoked as I was reading this. Is like, if God showed up this way for Daniel in the Old Testament, in Babylon, in exile, how much more? For those of us who are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, covered by his blood, brought into the family, and indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, how much more? Are we looking for a response? When we pray, do we believe that God will actually do something? Do we actually trust that as we're praying for Ukraine, in the situation in Eastern Europe, that God will actually do something, or are they just trite prayers? Because our God is able. His arm is not too short. He is powerful and capable of doing what we ask, and he's eager to do it. What if it was known in our city that if one of those crazy followers of Jesus prayed for you, stuff was going to happen. What if it was known 
that when a follower of Jesus asked their God on your behalf, stuff happened. The way I see this is I think of this as we as followers of Jesus have been given this beautiful sword, this amazing tool to accomplish amazing things. It serves a purpose. But instead, we've kind of we've put it in a glass case and we've put it up on the mantle on the wall somewhere and we admire it, we study it, we look at it. We debate its uses, but we never use it. We never pull it off the wall and actually put it into use. That's how I see prayer <laughs> or the works of the Spirit. Signs and wonders, healings, all those things. If we believe that God is able, why not? Those things are given to us as a tool for the sake of the gospel. To bring his kingdom to bear in the midst of a community that doesn't know him. Final thing here I want to highlight. Daniel, the last thing here. Daniel's prayer, the song that Daniel comes to. Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets them up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. To you, O God, my, O God of my fathers, I will give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and you have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Fourth, or the fifth thing here. Who gets the praise and the honor? God gets it. God gets the glory and the honor in all of these situations. Daniel, and I think Nikolai pointed this out last week, Daniel could have easily sought to elevate himself in this situation. He could have easily sought to preserve and protect himself and get rid of all those pesky mu uh, magicians. I almost said musicians. <laughs> pesky musicians. Um, sorry. He could have easily sought to elevate himself. He could have easily sought to preserve and protect his community. He could have said, you know, king, what this means is you shouldn't go back and take the rest of my people into exile. You should actually send me back. That's what this means. But through this whole thing, Daniel seeks that God gets praise, honor, and glory. Even Nebuchadnezzar and the magicians have to acknowledge that Yahweh is supreme. That there is no one like him. And that he is above all of the other gods.
In our passage we read in Acts, there's that part in verse 13. They saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, but they recognized they had been with Jesus. When you talk, do people recognize that you have been with Jesus? When you meet somebody at the park, when you talk to a barista, do they recognize that you have been with Jesus? Can they tell there's something different about you? Can they see something unique and different that points back to Jesus? Not for uniqueness sake, not for your own sake or your own glory or your own power or your comfort or your position, but to point to the good news of Jesus. That's my prayer tonight. That's my hope tonight. God, would refuge be known by these marks? Would we as a community, as a creative minority, faithful in exile, faithful in Santa Rosa, would we be marked by faith and confidence, trust and allegiance to Jesus? Would our allegiance be fully given to our King? Would we be marked as a community, a family, a tight-knit community that's stubbornly committed to each other? Would we be a people of prayer? Would we consistently and persistently go before God with our needs and our requests? Would he be the first place we go? Our initial reaction, our, our, our knee-jerk reaction. Would we be a community that steps out and looks for you to move, expects God to move? And then will we tell the stories of when God showed up, when God acted in behalf of our prayers? Would we tell the stories of God's faithfulness to us, his kindness to us? Ultimately, would we be a community that glorifies God above all things, where we lift him up as supreme and glorious? We pray. Jordan, come back up. Father, we thank you for these stories of faith and men of faith throughout the Bible. These stories of risk and response. These stories of you showing up. God, I thank you that you are faithful, that you are kind that you are eager and willing to respond to your children's pleas. God, I pray that you would make us a community like Daniel and his friends, like that early church community, that you would mark us as a people wholly given to you, 
God, I pray that we would be known as people of prayer, as people of love and kindness, and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.